Hello and welcome to the Majlis podcast, Radio Fair Period of Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Mohammed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Radio Fair Period of Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C. It's been one year since the eventful parliamentary elections in Kyrgyzstan, which led to so many additional events, developments and changes for the better or worse in the country. So on today's Majlis podcast, uh, we will take a look into some of the major events that followed that election and, and their implications. And of course, we will also talk about the upcoming parliamentary elections and political scene ahead of this important poll. So there is a lot to talk about, and let's dive into this. To do so, I'm joined by Dr. Emil Juraib, Bishkek-based political scientist, Sania Tukhtagaziba, constitutional law expert in Bishkek, Bruce Panier, the editor of Radio Free Liberty's Central Asia blog, Kishlok Awazi Bruce is joining us from Prague. Thank you, colleagues, for being with us today on this important conversation. Uh, an important anniversary, Dr. Juraib, which led to many changes in the country. I mentioned a couple of them in, in my intro. So let's start with you. So what's what's been the most consequential among all the things that happened over the past one year? I think it's very difficult to pick out something that is the most consequential, but uh, clearly the most consequential was the fact that a sitting government fell as a result of highly manipulated, highly broken elections. These days last fall and a new leadership came, a highly populist opportunistic leadership led by Sadr Japarov. And the very fact of them coming, he and his team, has really unfolded a wide array and and really a, sort of a shopping spree of events uh, ever since. Most importantly, change of the constitution in terms of the institutional and political changes. But the events that led to the change of the constitution, the ways in which it was done, I think all of this is really very difficult to uncouple and uh, single out something as outstanding. I think speaking of the constitution, um, Sania, you are our constitutional expert here. So uh, what's been your take on that front and the efforts to bring these changes into the constitution? Definitely, I agree with what Emil already said. For me, as for the lawyer and the constitutional law expert, I think the most challenging part of this year was the fact that the way how the constitutional referendum has been organized entirely with unprecedented violations of the procedural rule and the content of the constitution itself. I think many things are yet to come because currently in Kyrgyzstan we're experiencing the inventory of the laws, like almost 400 laws. The way how they're being rewritten is also like is done behind closed doors. All the laws related to the criminal justice are being rewritten again. And for a lawyer, actually, the way how they're treating the law, in my opinion, is exacerbating this legal nihilism that had been compiling all these years. And it is really worrisome because at the end of the day, when society, generally the Kyrgyz population, will stop trusting the laws like for 100 percent, I'm really afraid that these laws can be substituted by moral norms or religious norms or other social norms, uh, especially given the fact that all those most of the norms like the moral norms 
traditional values and all these uh, things have been already integrated within the constitution. It's just a matter of time how those provisions will be unpacked. Yeah. So therefore, that is the most significant thing that happened this year. The change of the constitution and the ongoing inventory and the reform in institutional and, and in all the like, criminal justice system, mm. etc. Mm. On the institutional changes, though, feel free, Emil, if you want to jump in here. Otherwise, Bruce... This question goes to you. Yeah, aside from the constitutional change that uh, Sani was talking about, also Emil mentioned earlier, institutional change. One of that is his efforts for empowered presidency. I, I don't know if this is the right way to put it. What's your take in terms of the, the type of change that he tried to bring? Well, you know, in some ways, it's it, it's kind of hard to say because so much has happened in the last year. Um, certainly, you know, he's concentrated almost all the power into his own hands. So w- whenever he talks and says this is what's going to happen in the country, um, you, you know that there won't be much debate on that, and you know, and we still have the old Parliament in, and their mandate expired, you know, all also like almost a year ago. Yeah. So a lot of people consider it an illegitimate Parliament, but they seem to go along. Uh, most of the deputies with, with whatever he wanted to do. I guess under the new constitution, he, he has enough power that he probably wouldn't even need their support that much. But they've gone along with him too. It's been difficult to gauge how how deep the power is entrenched in in the office of the presidency just because like i said there's been so many other things going on at the same time uh, some i would suggest by design i mean there's some that are not clearly that the, the health care problem associated with the coronavirus is something that's beyond their control uh, you know they've had problems with the tajik border and things but some of the other things the arrests of detentions of officials from previous administrations and corruption investigations and things like this almost you know it's gotten so pervasive i, I mean it, it's there in the news almost every day that you wonder if some of this isn't a distraction to keep people's attention away from other matters that are going on within the presidency, what he's doing to further concentrate power in his own hands. It's certainly a bad sign that that no one challenges him very often, you know, and, and this lead this is something else that that associated with his presidency and the new powers that he has is Kyrgyzstan has traditionally had people who were willing to voice opposition to ideas from the president, you know, and even groups that were willing to do it. But but Relative to Kyrgyzstan, it's been pretty quiet, and I get the impression, and I've certainly read some articles that that hint that you know this is because of pressure on anyone who's willing to speak up mm-hmm. or trying to speak up against Japarov and, and his team. If you are going to get up and say something bad about them or criticize them, you know that you're going to come under pressure really, really quick. You know, it, it's not like that didn't exist before, but they got a lot more public attention. Whereas you know a lot of people that we we've been used to hearing voice complaints or criticisms of the government, you know, uh, Omar Bakteki Baya being one, uh, but there's others in there too. They've been relatively quiet and it's very strange that they have mm. been that mm. quiet and, and, you know, I interpret that as meaning that, that they feel threatened some way mm-hmm. uh, if they, they challenge this I, president. I, yeah, th- that's exactly yeah. actually where, where I wanted to bring you, Emil. Like, you know, when whenever there's an election in Kyrgyzstan, you expect certain political pressure on opponents. But how his first year could be compared with the first years of any previous presidents in Kyrgyzstan in terms of applying that sort of tactic? Um, and also feel free to, to, to I, say I what think, you had in mind. Yeah, I think in, in your previous question, you uh, raised the question of institutions and institutional change. Yeah. I think what's happening in Kyrgyzstan in the yeah. circumstances that made it possible to come to this state of affairs in Kyrgyzstan is very serious problem with institutions. Hmm. Institutions of governance in Kyrgyzstan have been hollow. 
they have been so inconstant and so open to manipulation that when it came to for those institutions formal constitutionally set institutions to resist tampering and uh, abuse they didn't stand and what is happening with the parliament that bruce uh, said i mean the parliament that's been sitting one year over the term that the constitution showed mm. that is an exact exactly the evidence of how institutions have been hollow or and generally i mean uh, when it comes to highest level institutions it's all been dependent on persons on individuals at the top so right now i think looking back for at this year that's elapsing i think uh, we can see this leadership came in at last year uh, at the beginning with a very high level of popular support i think that needs to be objectively admitted that almost no other president at entering the office either way i mean through elections we had only one president coming in with elections actually well, I mean, besides Akayev. But every time a new leader comes in, they did not enjoy that level of mobilized, loud, vocal support that Sadr Jafarov has enjoyed. Now, he has been wasting that support, clearly, over mm. this year. And as he has wasted and as he has quite clearly made lots of mistakes and blunders along the way, I think it has also opened the way to sort of an almost paranoid feeling preoccupation with security of his government, of his rule. And in, in coming up to the elections, that, that'll be in two months, I think what we see is really an awareness that just the way they came to power, the mm. current leadership, things can turn away from them and Kyrgyzstan can plunge again into this sort mm, of turbulence. Mm, mm. And as to this relative silence that Bruce was talking about, mm. I think it's somewhat common in Kyrgyzstan. That was happening in Kayev's times as well, in Bakiev's times as well, and even in Atambayev's times. The majority of the parliament always agreed and voted the way the presidents wanted until the streets overturned everything. Mm, and mm. so I think this relative seeming calm I would not be so counting on. Okay, so, okay. Let, so we, it, let's talk about the feelings in the street a little bit later. Emil, one more point. I want to take, um, uh, Sanya, your thoughts on that. In our previous conversation, I vaguely remember uh, you saying that you will be looking into uh, how he treats the what was that, constitutional body or the Supreme Court judges? There were some appointments that you thought are coming up. So uh, any thoughts on that? I mean, has there been any change from that perspective? So definitely, according to the new text of the Constitution, mm. president has a lot of power mm. or the influence over the judiciary up to the appointment of the chief justices, the both Supreme mm. Court and Constitutional Court. Mm. Uh, so the Constitutional Court hasn't started working yet because mm. they're mm. waiting for the law to be adopted. So in that respect, but the composition remained the same. I think there was a secret deal actually between the sitting judges in a way that they would uphold the constitutionality of these amendments in return there would be the guarantee that they will remain at their seats so i think there was a secret deal i'm pretty sure about it actually otherwise like any lawyer who knows the way how constitution works and the rule of law would have never delivered this decision and there is one more thing that i really want to highlight about 
the consequences of this Adar Jabarov's mm. regime essentially is that I think currently the fact that he himself came with this a very populistic and nationalistic slogans along with deliberate ignorance of rule of law created a condition that he is now completely surrounded by the opportunists who are using their positions for the purposes of to satisfy their own ambitions and hidden motives. For instance, like Kurmanko Zuloshev, the general prosecutor. So by using his position, now he's rewriting all the criminal codes in a way that sooner soon he's going to become the second person in the constitution after the president. At the same time, we see Tashiv also using the, his position constantly, like exceeding his powers and uh, involving in those areas that actually he does not have any power according to the constitution. Or look at what Akhilbek Japarov is doing, the minister of economy, again, rewriting the tax codes, uh, laws with, in relation to business, kumtor, like he brought the Tengiz Bolturuk now, and the way what they're doing now behind closed doors, it's like, again, I think there was a hidden motive for them to gain something. And the deputies, like there are current, like recently two deputies, they came up with the initiative on amending the laws on our central bank, which in itself making it more like less independent and integrating something called financial technologies and the finance. And they also have the personal interest because seems that with the strange Russian banker Vladimir Frolov, they're now lobbying the interest to enter into our market. So this is really something that is bringing a huge destruction at the level of the rule of law and at the institutional level. If before there was the more or less some checks and balances mechanism, now that we have we don't have it any longer, it's just creating the perfect condition for such a team or the opportunities to come and to use our resources, our law and our institutions for the purposes of satisfying their own ambitions and hidden motives. Mm -hmm. uh, this is unfortunately wow. I think something that is really bad that is happening currently in Kyrgyzstan, which will have definitely the most like negative consequences sooner or later. Mm. And and those who question, you know, their policies, they are dealing uh, with them heavy handedly. Um, Sanya, I, I don't know whether there's a bigger story behind that earlier. You posted either on Twitter or some somewhere else, your Instagram account has been hacked. You know, hacking in other form of uh, cyber attack uh, is, of course, a major intimidation tactic these days uh, globally. So how big of a operation is this? Are you the only one being singled out or there are mm -hmm. more in terms of the, the, the pressure tactic through the cyberspace and others. So that, it's the Telegram account. Yeah. Uh, it definitely was. So my account was hacked. Zamir Joshev, he's also an advocate. Clara Soronkulova, the a woman candidate for the president, and Rita Karasartova. So they're both running under the political party reform. So my Facebook is constantly trying to be hacked several times. And then I think the biggest scandal that happened is actually in January, our uh, services had been wiretaping more than 100 activists lawyers, politicians, uh, legally by the sanction of the courts, which is the gross violation of our fundamental constitutional rights. And actually today, Zemir Joshov, uh, the attorney, also published in his Facebook account because we were planning to apply to the court and we needed those documents. And so they said that half of them have been destroyed and the rest has been are now under secret so they cannot share with, uh, them with us. So yeah, it, the level of 
basically gross violations that this current uh, regime is doing is really unprecedented, especially if before other regimes they used to, say, attack or threaten mostly the oppositions, the politicians. Now, somehow, they're threatening the lawyers who are not even in the politics. We don't have any ambitions to participate in the elections. We're just there to tell how the what laws are being violated just to uphold the rule of law. Unfortunately, yes, different tactics are being used to threaten, to hack, to wiretape. And uh, it, it is, of course, to a certain extent, it's very irritating, but somehow I already got used to that. We just wanted to continue and apply to the court, but somehow now we cannot have access to all those documents. Even though we have uh, that the Ministry of the Interior and the Press Secretary of the Pervamaisky uh, Court have confirmed that there was the fact of wiretaping and there was the decision of the court to do that. Very interesting. Also, other than the uh, the heavy hand on uh, critics, Kyrgyzstan is also in the middle of so many sort of uh, challenges, social challenges. Earlier in our one-on-one conversation, Bruce, you were hinting towards one of them being like uh, how to deal with the the impact of coronavirus. Of course, coronavirus is not something of his own creation, but again, he has to deal with it. And also, winter is coming up soon, and, and winters in Kyrgyzstan are often harsh. And we hear reports about the looming electricity crisis. How similar or different is it compared to previous years? You know, as far as the health crisis, I'm not sure that they did. You know, it'd be hard to say that they performed poorly. Mm. I I don't think the government was very organized and it never has been since this started, of Mm. course. You know, every country has been trying to deal with this and, and going down their own routes to do it. Uh, it, it probably could have been more efficient, you know, and, and more of the government could have had a more effective role in, in trying to get out healthcare programs. Um, but, you know, like I said, unfortunately for, for everyone around the world, it's, it's a learning experience for us all. So it's, it's hard to level criticism at them that, you know, given the situation when it started, I, I suppose they could have put a lot more time and, and paid a lot more attention to what was going on. That would have been something. When it comes to the electricity, it was a drought year, that's for sure. But they knew this was coming. Mm. You know, months ago, they knew this, that this was going to happen. That that It'll be interesting to see how much that erodes. You know, I mean, Emil was mentioned that there was high popular support, uh, or at least very vocal support. Uh, you know, I, I, would, I would have to mention that certainly the uh, the results, the turnout for the referendum and the presidential election were, were relatively small. And if you actually dissected all the the votes and stuff, you would see that, uh, you know, the amount of people that voted for Japarov in the presidential election was was far less than half. And, you know, and the same with the referendum. I think we did the math here and it came out to like actually 20 percent of eligible voters actually supported the referendum to change the Constitution. But to get back, like I said, to to, uh, the electricity and the the coming winter and it's been drought. So you can expect there's going to be food shortages. I have a feeling that that's going to eat into some of that popular support. Mm. You know, it was. It might have been a mistake to have elections in November, although it probably would have been worse if they'd done them later. But, you know, I'm, I'm not in Bishkek. Sonia and Emil are in Bishkek. They could tell you what it's like to go out at night. Or, you know, they've, they've already started turning off lights for non-essential, mm-hmm. non-residential use. Mm-hmm. And this is this is only going to get worse as we get into winter. And um, the, with the food situation, you know, I couldn't say, but I got to think that since it was a drought and then there's going to be far fewer crops uh, available, uh, domestic crops available. Available, that that's also going to be going to be hard on the Kyrgyz people. 
you know, to get this around to to make ends meet every month. Mm. You know that we know that the economy slowed down in part because of the pandemic. So uh, it'll be come November, uh, the, some of that popular support that Chaparro has enjoyed, I would expect, would fade away mm. once it gets time to parliamentary elections, which are already appearing to be rigged anyway. But like yeah. I said, I, yeah. I got to think that people will be less fond of Chaparov and his gang and um, their policies mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. late November. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we will we'll talk about that um, yeah, a little bit later, Bruce. Uh, one more question before I move on. Emil, his uh, government, his performance, we spoke about the electricity and um, a drought and a little bit about the impact of COVID-19 to the country. So uh, how his government's performance have, have been on, on jobs, for example, other social issues that Kyrgyz people are facing these days? Yeah, this uh, very multifaceted faceted crisis is actually ongoing in uh, in all the directions including jobs including production uh, everything when we talk about his government earlier we we're talking about the constitutional changes and the mm-hmm. point of them the biggest point of them was that the, it was argued that one person should handle everything mm-hmm. there should be full responsibility stacked with one person mm-hmm. and that person should carry that burden mm-hmm. of responsibility what has been going on in actual practice is one person has all the powers and none of the responsibility. The responsibility so far has been simply borne by people at much lower levels and the de facto prime minister who the now now the constitution stops calling a prime minister is supposed to be more or less in the same old fashion uh, the scapegoat that needs to be that has to be carrying all the dirty work all the the burdensome more hopeless sort of responsibility in turning the economy around and he's probably going to be scapegoated as we come closer to the election or or right after overall i think it's really hard to pinpoint to to any sector any sphere in the economy or social life where there has been improvement as opposed mm. to backward mm-hmm. slide mm. and uh, i think um, a lot of this is indeed uh, not necessarily of japarov's and his government's doing but a lot of it has to do with them not doing anything to revert the but, trends but but when he and was instead yeah, what what i was instead what i was thinking right. what, what i was thinking about is when he was uh, leading those uh, rallies of his sort of a fanatic supporters and he was uh, giving lots of promises has anything came out of those promises no i think there's a widespread joke now a rhyme a good night a rhyming joke here that says essentially that japarov makes promises and then takes back the, takes them back uh, in Kyrgyz, it sounds much smoother and nicer, mm. but essentially everything has been uh, staying at the level of promises. Mm. Uh, of course, many things have been actually put into action. Mm. Most of the time, not so good things mm. uh, have been put into action. But again, the, most of the people mm. at the, the ordinary level, uh, citizens, they have not been reaping any benefits of uh, what's been going on. Instead, what we've really seen is waste of even the few more or less professional competent uh, personnel cadre in the government coming of completely dilettante, Mm. incompetent leaders into different ministries and 
this whole scope of legal reforms that Sonia was talking about, only God knows wherever everything's headed. Mm. Yeah, yeah. to your earlier point in terms of promises staying there, like uh, we had a conversation the other day on Pakistan and people uh, interpreting the Pakistani prime minister's promises and they would they would call him like U-turn prime minister. So whatever he, you know, he says something today and he takes it back tomorrow. Uh, very interesting, very interesting. Of course, uh, there have been significant development in the foreign policy policy front. Earlier, some of you pointed out on that sort of a cold face by Russia uh, initially on some of the changes. And then you had a very bloody fight with Tajikistan and and now new developments in Afghanistan. Uh, what have been the, the ups and downs on that front? Let's continue the conversation talking about this and many other questions very shortly. First, let me recap the debate that today on the Majlis podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Emil Jurai, Bishkek-based political scientist, Sanya Tohtukazi, a constitutional law expert in Bishkek, Bruce Panier, the editor of Radio Free Radio Liberty Central Asia blog, Kishlok Owazi, I'm Mohamed Tahir, host of the Majlis podcast and Radio Free Radio Liberty's media manager here in Washington, D.C. And we are discussing the developments in the past year in Kyrgyzstan in the context of the anniversary of a controversial election one year ago uh, that brought the current leader into power on the on the foreign policy front uh, of course Bruce this is your uh, area uh, this, of course uh, what stands out is the the conflict with with Tajikistan let's talk about this in a minute but uh, Kyrgyzstan's ties with Russia are very important uh, how this has been under Japarov uh, as I said earlier we, with the initial sign of Moscow showing sort of a cold face on some of the changes that has taken place immediately he coming into power how it developed over the past year well you know of course Japarov went to Moscow and publicly I'm sure that the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin they don't want to make it look like there's any kind of big rift I mean you mm-hmm. can you can get the undertones that this is a, you know like you said a kind of a cold reception uh, mm-hmm. Russia is really against the change of leadership certainly by you know through popular unrest mm-hmm. you know and they, they weren't any happier with this latest change in leadership in Kyrgyzstan in fact they warned about that just several months before that you know enough enough was enough and Kyrgyzstan couldn't couldn't keep having these revolutions happen in their country um, so, you know but, so, but that so, said like so like uh, I said, that, Bruce they, so the uh, uh, Putin's reaction, like a sort of a cold face, that as we the way we interpreted it. So that was only about the leadership change, or it was something has to do with Jabarov's personality. You know, it, it could be. I mm. mean, it, it could be a lot more. Uh, it could be very personal. You know, he, he doesn't have a huge amount of political experience. You know, he's uh, someone the Kremlin would have known about, but but probably had never put into their equation of who could end up at the top in Kyrgyzstan. You know, like I said, when, when they meet publicly, and they've seen each other several times, not not just during the visit, um, uh, you know, to Moscow, but of course they have to meet within the framework of these other larger groups, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, things like that. So the appearance is that you know that that everything's okay between Russia and Kyrgyzstan, mm. and and Russia has certainly pushed to get their influence into Kyrgyzstan as much as possible. Uh, and really, there's not much Kyrgyzstan can do, and Japarov personally can do to resist this, which is very unfortunate. But so they want to make it look like everything is a business as usual dealing with uh, between Russia and Kyrgyzstan. But you you just get like I said, every time they meet, you get the impression that Putin gives the allotted amount of time to Japarov to say something or make statements mm. or something. But it's all very 
scripted. Uh, there's no warmth between two when they when they're talking or anything like that. Putin doesn't go out of his way to praise him or say that this is what's happening in Kyrgyzstan is good or Japarov is a good leader. Nothing like that, you know. And, and this stands, of course, in stark contrast to his Putin's recent relationship with uh, Imam Ali Rahman mm. in Tajikistan, yeah, where they seem to be great friends. You know, I mean, Rahman went to the veteran at uh, World War II anniversary, end of World War II anniversary, Victory Day celebrations in Moscow. He was the only leader that went. You know, they always, Putin, uh, you get the impression that, that Putin consciously makes an effort to be close to Rahman when Japarov's around. You know, just to kind of show that that they're the Kremlin favors someone who stays in power and keeps control over his country, even if he's a wicked despot, you know, as opposed to someone like Japarov. Interesting. I don't know how it feels like on the ground. Maybe, uh, Emil, you can talk about that. But of course, and also the, there's another very important foreign policy matter that we should not forget to talk about is the, the conflict with the Tajikistan, of course, as much as it is a foreign policy matter, also very, very emotional on both sides of the border in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan. So, Emil, uh, if you wish, uh, let me bring you in here. So how uh, this, this tension with Tajikistan has tested his leadership and how his performance has been evaluated locally? on that just like with the rest of his policies where mm. there's a speaking in the language of economics an inelastic sort of support that Sadar Japarov enjoys no matter what he will get that support I think that sort of support is of course behind him despite the fact the obvious fact that what happened with Tajikistan and what has followed since then has been showing a lot of weakness unpreparedness lack of clear strategy or end goal with dealing with this with our neighbor now the very fact of the conflict that happened is is possibly the most tragic thing that has happened in this past year in terms of lives lost in terms of really the more of a little war thing that has taken place between the two countries for the first time since independence and the facts the the objective facts on the ground will be actually established and will be studied analyzed down the road i actually saniya has done a lot of work on that and uh, but uh, the burden that still stays with sadr japarov's government with kyrgyzstan is really the burden of not understanding not giving the the necessary adequate level of understanding and diplomacy and uh, appreciation of how how sensitive this question of borders is and in a way giving an excuse for Mamadi Rahman his military power to build up and then open full-scale war mm. now i think in terms of slightly just for a, a second about mm. president japarov and president putin's interaction i think uh, there's there's no surprise of course mm. that putin should not like him it would be more surprising if putin was giving uh, was showing a lot more of fondness or positive attitude right. not surprising that none of the leaders in central asia has uh, has given a lot of positive attitude to japarov simply because no none of the presidents surrounding kyrgyzstan would like to be seen by their own citizens at least mm. as welcoming or being supportive of a leader that comes by the path that japarov came but and especially to to uh, putin's dislike of course chaparov sorted out playing the more nationalist sort of mm. leader and putin obviously mm. cannot like that mm. very much but in the end i think 
for Putin, most of these things, his uh, reveries uh, with Emma Mali Rahman, mm. with his attitude toward Putin, it's all very pragmatic, very calculated mm. politics for him too. Mm. And Putin doesn't do it just for because of the emotions. Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Can I ask a question, yeah. Mohammed? Sure, and sure. this is for for both Emil and, and Sonia. You know that obviously it was a, um, a disaster what happened in the, along the Kyrgyz-Tajik border at the end of April. But I've always wondered, you know, that I know that Japarov had his sights set on King Tor. But do you do either one of you see that he? Went after Kum Tor so quickly after the Tajik Kyrgyz problem as was that a distraction? Uh, you know, or yeah. I mean, like I said, I you knew that he was going to go after Kum Tor sooner or later, but things went so badly on the Tajik border, and he just switched everyone's focus right over to Kum Tor mm. instead. Mm. You know, within two weeks, did you see it that way? Perhaps. Partly, yes, I would answer to this question that I myself interpreted it as a strategic tool that has been used by Sadr Jabarov and his team to mm. distract the attention. Because frankly speaking, after the, um, the conflict on the border, the way that the government reacted to that, despite the fact that the citizens really wanted to speak up about the fact of aggression and etc., but they didn't do anything, and after we have applied to the constitution or sorry international criminal court which where the communication has been signed by more than 50 victims and then uh, civil society organizations and etc actually the presidential administration have written a press release claiming that these are the destructive forces they're trying to destabilize and etc so this kind of reaction actually i think made the popularity or the ratings of the Sadr Jabarov fall particularly in Batken um, and in other regions as well so of course he needed something to distract to draw the attention back and and Kumtor, I think, was the only uh, option available for them. I would agree. Interesting. And also, we need to really move on. It's late in Bishkek. Uh, our guests are joining from there. So, uh, you know, no Kyrgyz foreign policy discussion is complete uh, without talking about China. Emil or Bruce, anyone, please jump in. Any Anything more talking about in this front, like in Kyrgyz-Chinese relations? Anything has changed over the past one year? So far, Kyrgyz-Chinese relations have not seen any visible, clear move. The topic of Kyrgyz-Chinese relations was very high on the agenda, very high on the under the attention of the general public last year when Sadr Japarov came. Indeed, yeah, yeah. paying off the Chinese debt was really one of the biggest slogans that Sadr Japarov took up. Hmm made it a promise and it was one of the biggest demands on the part of the population the looming large debt to the uh, to uh, china was something that late in his days and months president jay becker was really struggling they were almost begging to postpone the upcoming regular payment Mm -hmm. installment so that's where it stood and uh, but outside of shanghai cooperation organization dialogues uh, conversations there hasn't really been i mean a very high level and noticeable mm-hmm. important interaction on the, on the two sides mm-hmm. there has been some help still received again from china recently there is a rejuvenated I mean, a revitalized talks about uh, china kyrgyzstan uzbekistan mm-hmm. railroad this never ending and never materializing sort of Hmm. idea. But beyond these, I think, no, we cannot say that qualitatively much Hmm. has changed between Hmm. the two countries. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, You know, since Bruce, you just did a story on that. That's why I will uh, ask, and I expect you just uh, briefly touch on this one, the new developments in Afghanistan. I don't know if the 
there was any anything happening except the, the Kyrgyzstan sent a delegation to meet the Taliban. Is there anything to read into Kyrgyzstan's approach toward these you know new events in Afghanistan? You know, like it, it, with the most, a lot of countries, we're getting two different messages here. But I think Kyrgyzstan did a good job of, you know, when the delegation went down, of trying to just make sure that that it was clear to the people running Afghanistan that Kyrgyzstan really didn't want to get involved in this at all uh, and to leave them alone. You know, that said, Japarov had one of the strongest statements when the Shanghai Cooperation Organization met, or no, it was the CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization. He said having the three theocratic government in Afghanistan was a threat to all CSTO member countries. Mm-hmm. Which was, like I said, the the furthest. I think the furthest out that anyone at that conference or at the summit uh, went, as far as commenting on Afghanistan. So, mm-hmm. you know, you get a little of both. He's mm-hmm. clearly uncomfortable with it. So are a lot mm-hmm. of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think they, I think they shored things up pretty well mm-hmm. uh, and let the Taliban know that they really don't have much of an interest, except for trade mm-hmm. interest with Afghanistan, and they don't want any problems. Interesting. Okay. So let's bring the, the conversation uh, to local developments. Sonia, the upcoming uh, elections that's coming up like in, in less than two months now, I guess. Uh, so what stands out to you? in this election, the preparation for this election compared to the previous elections? Is it going to be more fairer, less fairer? Anything anything stands out to you? So it's definitely going to be completely different in comparison with previous elections mm. because now we have new rules, mm. except for the party elections on the proportional system, we also have the single, single district. So which means now what really strikes me, I have seen all this district, how they have been shaped and drawn. To a certain extent, I think the way how it has been drawn can be characterized as gerrymandering, like frankly speaking, and uh, which in itself can cause a lot of post-election conflict in those districts, especially in the South, especially if, let's say, there will be the um, ethnic Uzbek minority candidate who loses. And and the way how all these districts has been drawn now creates this opportunity that most likely they are going to lose, you know. And of course, uh, the way in this single district uh, mandates, it's practically impossible to Mm. incorporate quotas. Mm. So in those districts, uh, less likely women will be elected so which means we're going to have substantially decreased amount of women to be represented in mm. parliament mm. which in itself is going to affect to the gender policies in Kyrgyzstan mm. so yeah these elections are going to be different because fundamentally now according to the constitution mm. we have completely different rules mm. as to them and mm-hmm. as for the fairness it's really hard to prognose, but now we, in comparison with the last year, we actually have very few opposition parties yeah. that are going to participate. And this is really something that is different in comparison. Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of like spoiler parties, mm-hmm. pro-governmental, and most of the uh, strong-handed candidates and politicians are actually planning to be elected through the single district uh, rather than political parties. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, these are the something that I could highlight. Mm-hmm. Okay, Emil, agree, disagree? Any any thoughts in terms of the how this is going so far? and uh, where we might end up. And also, earlier, you, you raised this point, I guess, uh, Emil, uh, thank you very much for that. The, the popularity of Jabarov after one year in power, where his current level of popularity puts him in terms of the outcome of the election or your prognosis about the outcome of the election. Uh, the elections are likely, somewhat predictably, to produce a very pliable, very loyal majority in the parliament. 
uh, a resounding majority perhaps uh, that will be able to support uh, the on which sub Japarov will be able to re- rely and not that he he had any problems with the current parliament mm. but the elections must be had uh, but indeed, as Sania said, the electoral system has changed quite dramatically. I can only imagine whether there will be hiccups along the way, especially on the day of voting, when the proportional representation part, based on the party lists, will have to be also including preferential voting method, mm. where people can easily start making mistakes, and which may result in broken ballots or spoiled ballots. So that sort of things, nuances may occur. But overall, all, I think the parliamentary elections uh, already now, even before the campaign has started, the government, relevant agencies of the government have been working hard to make it more predictable, sort of remove the most uh, distrustable or, or suspicious for- forces. Now, again, uh, Kyrgyz elections are a matter of unpredictability overall in the larger picture. I mean, elections are where things can turn differently than what you expect. So you never know. Mm. Unpredictably predictable. Interesting. Bruce, uh, last question. What's the post-election scenario will look like from your perspective? You know, I guess he's here to stay. He's a young man, energetic as far as I can see, and looks like he likes the attention. Um, So what's next? Well, yeah, I agree that I think this is already being managed so that the majority of people that get elected will be Jafarov supporters. He's going to, he, because, just because his support is kind of fading away, he's going to need to make sure that most of the deputies that get elected are, are supporters. So he does, so he has support actually from that quarter and instead of dissent, mm-hmm. you, you know, kid, but predictably unpredictable is, is a great way of looking at it. You, you just never know. There's, it's complicated, you know. I mean, they've done where they've had single mandate and party lists at the same time before. But uh, Sonia has said that people, I think, that people are going to run in single. A lot of politicians, powerful politicians, are going to run in single mandate districts because they made the party list system so complicated. I had to have this explained to me a couple times, you know, that in order to root out corruption or buying positions in the party list, which was chronic in Kyrgyzstan. You, you supposedly gave a million dollars. Your name was number one, two, or three or something on the party list. You're guaranteed to get a seat. Now, you have to vote for a party, and every party has a number. And then, as a person running for that party, you have you have an individual number also. So you can be running from party number three, and you are candidate number 17, and the voters are supposed to know that. You know, and, and like I said, on paper, it looks good because that way you can't put the top people as the first five people and expect that they will take the seats if the party gets the votes. But it's really confusing, you know, and, and I imagine a lot of people are going to be unimpressed with this particular thing. And there'll be room for grievances and saying, you know, I, I, I don't know, the whole thing was so complicated. And, uh, you know, and we redistrict did redistricting gerrymandering, I think is a correct term, uh, which allowed people influential and rich people to move it, you know, essentially guaranteed them victory in the election coming up. So, you know, uh, but I, I'm certain that they, at least they're angling for a pro-Japarov parliament to get into power mm, or to, let, be, to be elected anyway. Let's see. Let's see. Thank you. Thank you very much. Unfortunately, we have to uh, conclude the conversation here, but we will get back to it as the election comes closer. So with this, thank you very much. Bruce Panier, the editor of Ready for Repair the Liberty Central Asia blog, Kishlok Owazi. And big thanks goes to Dr. Emil Jarayev, Fishkick-based political scientist, and uh, Sanya Toktakaziva, constitutional 
international law expert also in Bishkek. Thank you very much. And this is from me, Mohamed Tahir, host of the Majlis and Ready for Peer Liberties, current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. Until next week, bye-bye.